the final month of season one of British history, royals, rebels, and romantics. I can't thank you all enough for joining me on this journey. It's been amazing. I've loved sharing the stories of fascinating characters from the past who can teach us so much about ourselves and our future. History shows us what's possible. This month, we're looking at family fun. First, some Stuart siblings, when brothers and then sisters take the throne. Then, just in time for Father's Day in the U.S., it's famous fathers and missing fathers in royal history. And finally, for our season one finale, I am thrilled to have Rebecca Larson of Tudor's Dynasty podcast join me to talk about one of her favorite family disputes in Tudor times. And this gives us what might just be the best line ever written in a letter. Now, sit back and enjoy the fun, the fractures, the fashions, and the frustrations that make up families. This week, we meet two sisters and two queens, Mary II and Queen Anne the Little Princesses. Born in 1662 and 1665, Stuart princesses Mary and Anne came into a turbulent world, especially turbulent for the royal family. Their grandfather, King Charles I, had been executed by Parliament in 1649. Their uncle, Charles II, had been invited to come back to England and restore the monarchy in 1660. Then there was the Great Plague of 1665 and the Great Fire of 1666. The girls were sent to live in Richmond Palace with their governess, Lady Frances Villiers, in 1668. They studied music, dance, drawing, French, and religion. Not exactly the training you might expect for two young women so close to the throne. Anne had eye trouble, so she was sent to France in 1669 to see a special doctor. She lived with her grandmother and wife of Queen Charles I, Henrietta Maria, After her grandmother's death, she lived with her aunt. Anne returned to England the next year and continued to have eye trouble for the rest of her life. In 1671, when Mary was nine and Anne was six, their mother died. Over the years, the two girls had had seen several baby siblings die as well. Their life may have been royal, but it had not been particularly carefree. As Charles II had no legitimate children, his Catholic brother James who was the father of Mary and Anne, was heir to the throne. In response to growing concern about the royal family's embrace of Catholicism, Charles II arranged a marriage between Princess Mary and William of Orange, a known advocate of Protestantism. Reportedly, Mary burst into tears when when informed she would be leaving her family and her country to marry the Prince of Orange, but she dutifully went ahead with the marriage in 1677 and went to live in the Netherlands. Around this time, Anne's good friend and maid of honor, Sarah Jennings, married John Churchill. The marriage was kept a secret so Sarah could remain in Anne's household. Their father came to the throne in 1685. Less than four years later, his reign turned into crisis. His new Catholic wife gave birth to a son who replaced Princess Mary as heir. 
Worried about long-term Catholic rule, leading nobles invited William of Orange to pursue Mary's claim to the throne. They said if William brought an army to England, he would find plenty of support. William arrived in England with his army in November. Realizing his forces were leaving him, James II sent his wife and baby son to France for safety and followed soon after. Parliament declared the king's flight an abdication, continued to deny the legitimacy of the baby prince, and declared Mary the next monarch. Both Mary and William rejected the option of Mary becoming queen and William becoming consort. The agreement was that they would reign jointly, the only such arrangement in British royal history. The public face of the arrangement was reinforced in the coronation of William and Mary on the 11th of April, 1689. A new coronation chair was built for Mary, and new elements of the regalia were created, including a globe, scepter, and sword of state. However, the monarchy was designed as a single-person endeavor, and both William and Mary thought of it that way. Even in the coronation, William's primary role was evident. He was anointed first, the sword was given to him first, and he was crowned first. Mary became popular, and people looked to her as the, quote, mother of the nation. Naturally, people hoped she would quickly produce heirs to provide for the succession. But for the time being, the heir was Mary's sister, Anne. Queen Mary and Princess Anne. As heir to the throne, Anne wanted better lodgings and a higher income. She wanted more and better apartments than she was offered, offending William and angering her sister. In the midst of this drama, Anne retired to Hampton Court Palace and gave birth to a healthy son. The king and queen were there for the birth. Anne's political importance increased with the birth of a son, who now represented the long-term future of the dynasty. The child was named for the king, and William and Mary stood as sponsors. Anne now sought a higher income, and Mary was upset about the way she went about it. Rather than appealing to her sister, Anne took the request to Parliament. Why? It was at the suggestion of Anne's great friend, Sarah Churchill. Anne had never lived within her income, and now her friend suggested she asked for £70,000 a year, which would be an enormous sum today. This was excessive, even for an heir who was now mother of a son. Mary thought Anne's going to Parliament was an insult to William. The king offered Anne a settlement if she would stop dealing with Parliament, but Sarah said publicly. This would mean nothing if the king didn't keep his word. In fact, Anne waited it out, and Parliament voted her an income of £50,000 annually. Mary was furious. The broken relationship of the sisters continued into 1690. Around that time, it seemed that the supporters of James the Second, known as the Jacobites, were preparing to make another attempt to restore James to the throne. Beginning to fear an invasion and threat to his throne, William dismissed Sarah's husband, the Earl of Marlborough, because the Earl was sympathetic to James and possibly supporting him. William removed Marlborough from his position at court and his military posts. Mary insisted that Anne send Sarah away as well, but Anne was having none of it. Two weeks after Marlborough's dismissal, Anne appeared at court alongside Sarah. It was a deliberate insult to the king and queen. As Anne was pregnant, Mary didn't confront her in person, but instead sent a letter advising her sister of the seriousness of Marlborough's betrayal. 
But Anne didn't feel any inclination to follow the king's wishes. She sent a response defending her friendship with Lady Marlborough. William also sent a message requesting the removal of Lady Marlborough. His request was ignored. The quarrel between the sisters escalated and Anne left court. The two sisters never saw each other again. Changing Times Mary's role in ruling the country changed in 1690 when William decided to lead the army against James's attempt to retake the throne. James had gathered French support and posed a real threat against William and Mary's reign. Parliament passed the Regency Act in 1690 to clarify Mary's right to exercise legal power and royal during William's absence. It also gave William the authority to override her acts when he returned to the country. Representations of Mary in art and medals cast at this time show her in a more powerful role. Mary's administration was one of challenge, with war, naval mismanagement, plots against the king and queen, and religious tension. Mary's style of rule was to seek William's guidance, writing him regularly and seeking his advice and counsel. She attended council meetings. Initially, she spent most of the time listening, but as time went on, she gained confidence and a voice. Mary supported moral, social, and religious reform. She sought to discredit drinking heavily. She also encouraged the establishment of a hospital for those injured serving in the military. Although she supported the Anglican Church, she attempted to moderate extremism and to improve the lives of dissenters. She recognized the value of the symbolism of the monarchy and sometimes received citizens when dressed in royal robes. Her portraits convey a sense of developing power, and majesty. Mary's foray into government won her the praise of Parliament. In October 1690, Parliament officially thanked her for her, quote, prudent care in the administration of the government. Her response was gracious and appreciative, but did not promote her sense of right to rule. However, she did well for her time. She continued to assume the leading role each time William left for military campaigns. When William returned, Mary stepped back into her supporting role, acting more like a consort than a co-ruler. One area where William and Mary worked together was in the building and rebuilding of royal property. Two of their major efforts were Hampton Court Palace and Kensington Palace. You can visit these marvelous locations in London. You can also learn more about the history on the Historic Royal Palace's website. I'll put that link in the show notes. Early in their reign, William and Mary were established at Whitehall, right in the heart of London. However, they dislike the smoky, damp atmosphere of the city and prefer the surrounding countryside. They began spending more and more time at Hampton Court Palace. Parliament objected to the king and queen being so far from the seat of government. Therefore, William and Mary decided to establish a home closer to Westminster. They selected a suburban villa known as Nottingham House. In 1689, the king and queen selected Christopher Wren to draw plans to transform the house into a palace. Mary became excited with the project and took charge. Kensington Palace was finished before the end of the year, and William and Mary moved in on Christmas Eve, 1689. Within a couple of years, the royals began holding magnificent balls in the palace. Beginning in 1691, the newly decorated rooms and impressive halls were filled with the elite guests one of them describing the evening this way. Saturday night was a great entertainment made for the Prince of Baden at Kensington, where there was gaming and dancing and a great supper and a banquet of sweetmeats. The visitors often danced through the night right up till dawn, 
and there, up to a thousand people could be there at one time. With Kensington Palace in place, William and Mary also worked on renovating their country retreat, Hampton Court. Now known primarily as one of the most exciting Tudor palaces in England, Hampton Court also offers a glimpse into the Stuarts and Georgians. When William and Mary came to the throne, they planned to tear down the Tudor buildings and replace them with a new Baroque palace. Once again, Christopher Wren was hired for the project. As the building project took years and a great deal of money, eventually, and fortunately for all of us Tudor lovers, the full project was abandoned and much of the Tudor Palace remains intact. But now Hampton Court is a building that tells the story of centuries of history in its palace and gardens. The stunning south front of the palace, viewed from the fountain garden, gives visitors a wonderful sense of the vision of William, Mary, and Christopher Wren for the reimagined Hampton Court. For chocolate lovers like myself, one of the most exciting additions to Hampton Court was the Chocolate Kitchens, built by Christopher Wren around 1690. Chocolate was a new luxury during the reign of William and Mary, and its inclusion in the palace demonstrated the wealth and modern touch of the monarchy. Typically, the king and queen would drink chocolate in the morning with breakfast as part of their levee, a ceremonial dressing of the monarch for the day. William seems to have been a bit of a chocoholic and would drink it throughout the day. Who can blame him? William even employed a special chocolate maker, Solomon de la Fea. Having dedicated that specific space meant the full process of transforming the cocoa beans into drinking chocolate was able to be done on site. Another area William and Mary enjoyed at Hampton Court was the gardens. They created some of the most spectacular gardens at the palace, including the Great Fountain Garden and a new Privy Garden. Wren added sections to accommodate the new state apartments for the king and queen, along with a grand staircase. The king's apartments faced the Privy Gardens, and the queen's apartments faced the Fountain Gardens. They were linked by a long gallery. The project began in 1689 and went on until 1694 when Queen Mary died. William abandoned the rebuilding for several years. Eventually, he hired Wren's assistant to complete the buildings, but the king suffered a serious accident at Hampton Court in 1702. He did not live long enough to live in those renovated rooms. After her sister's death, Anne knew only William stood between her and the throne. Anne resisted Sarah's influence to write a condolence letter to her brother-in-law in an attempt to heal the rift between them. William realized the importance of maintaining a good relationship with the heir to the throne, not to mention he realized Anne's claim to the throne was better than his. They met and expressed their mutual grief for Mary's loss, both appreciating her more in death than they had in life. Anne's 17th and final pregnancy ended in 1700 with a stillbirth. That July, her son William, her only living son, celebrated his 11th birthday at Windsor Castle. After a day of elaborate banqueting, dancing, and fireworks, he went to bed complaining of a sore throat. Over the next few days, he developed a fever. Physicians were unsure what was wrong. William died just six days after his birthday celebration. In her devastation, After her only child's death, Anne would allow only Sarah Churchill to attend her. 
William, the king, was stunned by the death of the young boy, of whom he was very fond. He wrote a letter of condolence to Anne. Meanwhile, the government began to grapple with questions regarding the succession. The 1689 Bill of Rights had declared that a Roman Catholic could not succeed to the throne of England. That eliminated the rights of James II and James Edward Francis, his son. But there were many who supported the hopes of that boy who would become known as the Pretender. And the specter of his return and the Jacobite regime would haunt the English crown for years. But Protestants in Parliament demanded a Protestant heir. In 1700, William invited Sophie, Electress of Hanover, to England and persuaded her to accept the English inheritance after the death of Queen Anne. Unfortunately, Sophie preceded Anne in death. James II died in September 1701. Louis XIV of France proclaimed James Francis Edward, King James III of England, infuriating William. In early 1702, William got that injury writing at Hampton Court Palace. He was probably also suffering from tuberculosis, and he never recovered from his injury. He died the 8th of March, 1702. Anne was now Queen of England. Queen Anne. Queen Anne is one of those characters who shows up in pop culture in very dramatic ways. She had to choose between her father and her sister and brother-in-law when it came to the Glorious Revolution. Her half-brother, James Francis Edward Stuart, continued to represent an alternate claim to the throne, and he tried to take it from her. Her relationship with Sarah Churchill and the Duke of Marlborough, and then with Abigail Masham, seemed right out of a soap opera. Her husband seems to fade into its obscurity, leaving only images of an ineffective and fairly absurd man, according to those around him. Even the tragedy of her 17 pregnancies with only five live births and no children reaching their teen years seems more the stuff of dramatic theater than real life. But Queen Anne was real. So rather than getting lost in the overdone drama, let's look at a couple of very significant events during her reign. Anne was not as attractive or or graceful as her sister, and her numerous pregnancies and health challenges had taken a toll. She was barely able to walk and had to be carried to her coronation in an open sedan chair. Her lack of physical vitality was a potential drawback when the image of a strong, vibrant monarch was associated with a successful, strong country. Lacking the physical power, Anne relied on her personality. For one thing, Anne made much of her English background to distance herself from William and the French-supported Jacobites. She declared, I know my heart to be entirely English. She also promised, quote, I can be very sincere in my assurance to you there is not anything you can expect or desire from me which I shall not be ready to do for the happiness and prosperity of England. This was exactly what the English people wanted to hear. Anne also demonstrated her commitment to the Anglican Church. Even if she had some regrets about betraying her father, she was determined that everyone know she had no interest in his Catholicism. Unlike the unpopular William III, Anne's husband was happy for her to take the throne on her own. She appointed him Lord High Admiral, but he had no interest in acting as co-ruler or consort. Anne was crowned the 23rd of April, 1702. She quickly took interest in affairs of state 
and was a patron of theater, poetry, and music. During Anne's reign, the structure of a constitutional monarchy, where the sovereign reigned and the ministers ruled, was consolidated. This was the foundation of modern government in Britain. During her reign, the notion of a two-party system developed further, resulting in fierce domestic political battles. Generally speaking, the Tories were supportive of the Anglican Church and the interests of the gentry, while the Whigs favored Protestant dissenters and more commercial interests. Anne supported the 1702 Occasional Conformity Bill, which closed a loophole in the Test Acts and attempted to bar Protestant dissenters from holding public office. The Whigs blocked the bill during that parliament, and later Anne withheld her support from the bill, hoping to avoid political quarrel. The rise in Whig control meant Anne was pressured to appoint Whig ministers. This contributed to her falling out with Sarah Churchill, a strong supporter of the Whigs, who continued to pressure the Queen for her side. Ultimately, Anne pursued a moderate political strategy. One of the most significant outcomes of Anne's reign were the Acts of Union. Although England and Scotland had been ruled by the same monarch since the death of Elizabeth I in 1603, the two countries were not united into a single kingdom. From her very first speech to Parliament, Anne took a firm stand supporting union, declaring it to be, quote, very necessary. Both England and Scotland had their reasons for supporting union by the point of her reign. The Scottish needed the economic security England provided, and the English wanted to overcome the old alliance between Scotland and France to secure England against French problems. Anne appointed commissioners to form a treaty that would officially unite the two countries into one rule. The Articles passed the parliaments of both countries in early 1707, uniting England and Scotland into Great Britain with one parliament. Anne attended a Thanksgiving service at St. Paul's Cathedral. Sir John Clerk wrote, quote, Nobody on this occasion appeared more sincerely devout and thankful than the Queen herself. The next year proved more difficult for Anne. The Duke and Duchess of Marlborough continued to attempt to exert influence over the Queen, especially against the Tories. Resentment was spreading in Parliament and across the country, and eventually for the Queen herself. Marlborough was victorious at Odernod, and Anne was to attend a service of thanksgiving. Sarah Churchill had laid out some jewels for Anne to wear, but the Queen didn't want to wear them. As they arrived at St. Paul's and the Queen was getting out of her coach, they were disagreeing and Sarah told the Queen to, quote, be quiet. This breach of protocol, particularly in a public space, was too much for the Queen to accept. She ended the friendship. Sarah did not go quietly. And when the Queen made it clear the friendship was over, Sarah attempted to destroy Anne's reputation. Two months after the argument at St. Paul's, Anne's much-loved husband, George of Denmark, died. Although they had not been able to produce a living heir, the relationship had been loving and supportive. Anne was devastated by his death. In her loneliness, Anne turned to Abigail Masham for friendship and support. This infuriated Sarah Churchill, who accused the pair of an inappropriate relationship. As the war with France dragged on, Anne became frustrated with the expense and loss of life. She dismissed Marlborough in 1711 and made peace with France. The treaty was eventually formalized in 1713, representing a triumph for Britain and its queen. 
but Anne did not have long to savor her victory. In August 1714, after suffering two violent strokes, Queen Anne died. One of her doctors wrote that, quote, I believe sleep was never more welcome to a weary traveler than death was to her. Anne was buried next to her husband and children in the Henry VII Chapel at Westminster Abbey. Based on the act of settlement, Parliament reached out to Sophie's son, George of Hanover, and invited him to succeed Anne on the throne. And that's how we get to the Georgians. Anne succeeded in her promise. The nation was more prosperous, more successful from a military and international standpoint, and more forward-looking in the arts, architecture, and culture than it had been when she came to the throne. The unification with Scotland and the structure of the constitutional monarchy achieved during her reign shifted Britain toward modern politics. With Anne's death, the turbulent Stuart dynasty came to a positive end. And now we have come to an end as well. Thank you so much for joining me to see the Stuart sisters on the throne. For the next couple of weeks, in honor of Father's Day in the U.S., we'll be looking at some famous fathers and some missing fathers of history. See you then. Thank you for joining us for this discussion of fun and dysfunctional families of British history. As always, please subscribe, rate, share, and let me know what you think. I really appreciate it. Now watch out for our summer specials as we keep exploring those royals, rebels, and romantics. And stay tuned for season two, coming in September 2021. It's going to be amazing. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for making season one a success. Please plan now to keep shaking up history with me. (laughs) 